Today, we're back in 1 Corinthians, and we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 28. We've been looking at the reality of Christ's resurrection and how important that is for us because the fact of the matter is if if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, uh, we have no hope. We're still lost in our sins. Uh, One cannot be a believer without believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ because over in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says that you should believe if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess him as Lord, it says what? It says you will be saved, period. You can't be saved without the affirmation of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's part, a very vital part of the gospel. We saw that in the opening verses of this chapter in verse uh, 3 of chapter 15 where Paul says, I deliver to you first as a first most importance what I also received that Jesus died for our sins. That's an important part of the gospel in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 4 says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the gospel. It's a vital part of the gospel. That's the gospel you have to believe in order to be saved from your sins. And so we've been looking at this chapter and in the first Um, several verses we've seen so far the prominence of the resurrection the proofs of the resurrection in verses 5 to 11 all the accounts that were there Uh, we looked at the hope of the believer's resurrection in verses 12 to 19 and then we've been looking at for the last couple weeks the results of Christ's resurrection the results of his resurrection and so we wanted to be clear here that if if Christ hadn't risen from the dead then we would have a real problem Um, and what Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians since you already believed that Christ has risen from the dead you believe the gospel why are you balking at believing that you one day will be resurrected with Christ and because of their pagan upbringing because of their religious beliefs of various things they had a hard time stomaching the idea that one day their body would be raised from the dead and um, Paul is, is dealing with their denial of that to some degree. And so we, we looked last week at the classification of uh, the, the resurrections. And I, I kind of want to spend a little time here because it's important that we understand all this. But before we do, I just want to read our verses this morning, verses 24 to 28. So if you stand in honor of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 28, Paul writes this, um, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Father, we ask you to bless your word 
to our hearts and our minds as we study it this morning. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the certainty of our resurrection. And we talked a little bit about the idea that uh, in verses 20 to 23 that Christ was the first fruit. He was the very first part of the believer's resurrection. Without Christ, we would have no resurrection. And so he was the, the first fruit, and we went into that and explained that. And then, basically, you have the resurrection of all believers. That's also part of that first resurrection. It's actually fourfold, and we'll be talking about that a little bit more. But because Christ was raised from the dead, that gives us the guarantee of our own resurrection after we pass on. Now, remember, it doesn't mean because he was the first fruit, and it's singular in the original language there. It's plural in our English translations, but it is singular in the original language. He, he is the only one uh, who went through this kind of a resurrection, and he was the first to do it. People had died and been risen from the dead by Christ himself and even in the Old Testament. But guess what? They all died again. This is the first of this kind where someone would rise from the dead and then uh, never die again. And that's what the scripture tells us. That's what Jesus promised us in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. Whoever believes in me shall what? Shall never die. And so we have a foundation here of our own resurrection in the resurrection of Christ. Because he rose from the dead. That gives us the opportunity, if we believe in Christ, if we follow Christ, to be risen from the dead one day as well. Now, even if you don't follow Christ, your body's still going to be risen from the dead. (laughs) But it's going to have to deal with judgment at that point, not the blessings of eternal bliss with God. And so this isn't the only place here where Christ is identified as the first fruits of the resurrection. Over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he's called the, the, the uh, first fruit from the dead. Um, the first one from the dead, the primary one from the dead. He's the, only, the, the first one that was risen in such a way that he will never die again. And even in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, he is called again the, 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 the prototokos, from the dead, that he is the risen from the dead, the premier one, the first one, you might say. And so it is one harvest in a sense, but it's kind of broken down into different groups. It's the resurrection onto righteousness. It is one harvest, but Christ is the first. He is the first fruit. Followed after that is the, the rest of the harvest, and that's what the whole purpose of first fruits was when the harvest was ready, they would go and they would gather the first fruits and they would bring them in and offer them to the Lord. But that demanded that the rest of the harvest be done as well. And so we saw that last week. We saw the resurrection of, of Christ. We saw the resurrection of the unrighteous. We saw the resurrection of the righteous. And um, it says here, uh, the, the previous verse that I didn't read this morning, verse 23 at the end, it says, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ... Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Um, There's a wonderful thing coming sooner or later, and it's the coming of Christ. (laughs) Right? I mean, I hope you're excited about this. It's, It's our hope, the Bible says. That's the hope we have, that he promised to return, and he will. And it's the coming of Christ at the end of the age. And everybody says, well, when's it going to happen? Nobody knows. Now, there's certain signs that are given. 
uh, in the Bible. But here, this word, you know, coming, this parousia, is, you hear it pronounced sometimes, it it's literally has the idea of presence, the arrival, that Christ will come. And the reason he will is so that the fulfillment of the resurrection of all the redeemed will occur, it says, when he comes. That's when we will be resurrected. Uh, when we die right now, what happens to our bodies? They're either cremated or they're buried somewhere, and they sit there in the grave. And they decay. That's generally what happens to a, a dead body over a period of time. And uh, the believers who are with the Lord, the Bible says if you're a believer in Christ, your soul goes where? To be with the Lord. To absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Now, it's important that we kind of understand that. And, and we don't have our, if we, if we died right now and we we're a believer, we won't have our body. We don't take our body with us. Our body goes to the grave. But our soul goes directly into the presence of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, um, these absent from the body beings, these souls, are called spirits of just men made perfect. So it's, a, it's not a body at this point. Nobody has their resurrected body other than Christ. Um, and so they're there in the presence of God in, you might say, in personality, but not in any physical form. They're there as a soul, as a spirit. Um, they don't have their glorified bodies yet. Why? Because their bodies are still in the grave. If you go up on Skyline and you dig up a, a, a grave with a casket, and you, uh, there's going to be a body in there, hopefully. Okay? Or ashes or something. Why? Because they were buried. Well, one day the Bible says when Christ comes back that those bodies will be resurrected and they will be reunited with the souls that left them behind. <clears throat> and so they're there in, in personality. They're not in physical form. Not in glorified physical form yet. And uh, you say, well, what are they doing up there waiting around for their bodies? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, the Bible says that when you're in the presence of God, I think you're going to have a lot of things to think about. And besides, when you're in heaven, there's going to be no time continuum. You won't know time as we know it now. Heaven is outside the bounds of time. So it's not like your soul's up there going, come on, Lord, hurry up. I want my body. You know, that's not the way it works. All right? You're, you're, you're praising the Lord as best we can in our soul, but our body is still down here. And, and that's kind of hard to understand sometimes, but that's what the Bible indicates. And so, um, what is the coming of Christ? When you think about the coming of Christ. You know, this involves a whole theological study of what they call eschatology, the study of end times. All right? And uh, we can't get into all of it today. But here in our text, when he refers to his coming... In verse 23, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When he says at his coming, this isn't in reference to a specific point in time. It's a, it's a very general term for the coming of Christ. And the idea basically is that he is coming back. He is coming back. Now we can technically look at the coming of Christ in two ways. You know, as scripture uh, speaks of it, um, at the end, when, when he does return, uh, basically it will begin the end of all ages. 
the end of times. In the New Testament, um, and that's when these resurrections will happen. In the New Testament, it's called the resurrection of the just, or the resurrection of the dead, or the better resurrection is another name for it, or the resurrection of life. It's also called the first resurrection. So the second resurrection is what? The resurrection of those who are unjust, those who have not trusted Christ. And when they are raised from the dead, and there will come a time when their souls will be reunited with their bodies, but they will be, unfortunately, have the opportunity to be under the just wrath of God and damnation forever in a place called hell. That's what the Bible indicates. And it's not you just die and go to sleep and, you know, there's nothing left after that. No, both believer and unbeliever will one day have a resurrection. And so the first resurrection is the resurrection of the redeemed. Well, what does that include? Well, that includes, the first resurrection includes, obviously, the resurrection of Christ. Because as we said, without the resurrection of Christ, no other resurrections of this kind would happen. All right? So it involves the resurrection of Christ, as we talked about last week, and he is the first fruits of this resurrection. And the rest will be at his coming when he returns. And so there's, we've got to talk about this for a little moment, so put on your thinking hats. And uh, his, his coming will basically be two, twofold. You might look at it this way. Um, he is returning for his church. We know that as the rapture, right? He's coming back for the elect. He's coming back for the church. Um, but we can also talk about the day of the Lord when he actually physically returns to this earth and he puts his foot on the earth. And the Bible says then he will rule and uh, justly rule and carry out judgment on the earth. Well, the first event, the rapture of the church, is really what triggers uh, the end. As he says there in verse 24, then the end comes. Well, that can't happen until after, after the rapture of the church. Uh, we believe in a, a pre-trib rapture. A rapture basically means a caught up. Um, it's explained for us if you turn over to First Thessalonians chapter four. First, Thess- First Thessalonians chapter four. <clears throat> And just so you know, the, the rapture of the church is, a, is, a, is an event that has no, nothing pointing to it. We believe it's the imminent rapture of the church. In other words, nothing has to happen before this takes place. You can't point to a certain thing and go, oh, that has to happen. No. This could happen now. It could happen 100 years from now. It could happen 1,000 years from now. I don't know what God's plan is. Okay, no one does. Only the Lord knows. But in 1 Thessalonians, we're told, Paul talks about this as an event that has no signs. There's no signs before this happens. Look at what it says in verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, he's talking to Christians, about those who are asleep, those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. If you have someone who knows the Lord and they passed on, and, and, you know, yes, you miss them. Yes, you grieve the loss. But you know what? They're in a much better place than you would ever dream of being, okay, here on this earth. And there is no way they would ever want to return back here to this earth because they are in the presence of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To be absent from the body 
is to be present with the Lord. So he says, don't, don't grieve as others who don't have hope because we do have hope. Well, what is that hope? He says in verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4, for since we believe that Jesus died and what? Rose again. Okay. The gospel. That's the gospel. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. All right, what, what is this saying? Well, those who have died in Christ, when you come to Christ, your sins are eradicated, they're forgiven, they're washed as white as snow, they're removed as far as the east is from the west, they're buried in the depths of the sea. When God looks at you as a child of Christ, a child of God, he does not see your sinful self, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ because it was on the cross that Christ took and bore all of your sins and when he was done, he said what? It is finished. We don't have to grovel in the dirt. We don't have to crawl on our knees with a, a cross on our back for miles and miles to try to earn God's favor as some churches teach today, unfortunately. Why? Because favor has been granted to us through Christ. And so he says, hey, if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, guess what? God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. So what's happening? Those, who, those souls who have gone on to be with the Lord, when the Lord returns, okay, with this rapture, he's, he's, he's coming for his, his church, and he's bringing those who died in Christ with him, and their bodies are going to be, as it says here, verse 15, for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. <clears throat> What's he talking about? He's talking about those who have died before. They're in Christ. They died. Their soul went to be with Christ in heaven. Their body's still in the grave. But now the rapture happens. What happens? The Lord comes back, and he, he comes in the clouds. And he calls those who are in Christ to himself. And those who have died, guess what? Their bodies will be resurrected at that point in time. That's part of the first resurrection. Christ first, and then those who died in Christ is kind of the, the second layer of that first part of the resurrection. But then he says, <clears throat> we who are alive, we will be caught up. Okay. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left at the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then look at what it says. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, We'll be caught up. That's where we get this word rapture. It means to be caught up. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Where? On the earth? No. It says in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And that's why he says in verse 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What is this describing? It's describing this event that I spoke of called the rapture. The catching away of the church. Believers being taken into heaven. <clears throat> and it's the same thing that's referred to at the end of the chapter here. If you look all the way down at the end of 1 Corinthians, back in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 51. 
He says, behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul is saying. In other words, this is kind of hard to understand. He says, we shall not all sleep. Paul says, we're not all going to die. But we shall all be changed. You have to be changed to go to heaven. Your, your body, as you know it right now, cannot enter the gates of heaven. It has to be transformed. It has to be changed. Well, what does he say? He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I like what John MacArthur said about this verse. He says, that's a verse that hangs in, our, in their nursery. <laughs> we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. <laughs> I thought that's kind of unique. But verse 52, it says, in a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That's not a blink. That's the time it takes for light to refract off the lens of an eyeball. It's, it's very quick. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. In other words, at that point, those souls who came with Christ will be reunited with their, their dead bodies. And they'll have a glorified state to them because it says they'll be raised in imperishable, and we shall all be changed. Verse 53, for the perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, look at what it says, death is swallowed up in victory. In victory of what? The victory of your own resurrection. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So it's very clear that this rapture will take place, but it's going to take place suddenly. It's going to, it's going to take place without any... You're not going to have a notice. Hey, I'm coming back next Wednesday. Get ready. No. That's why the Bible indicates that we should always be desirous and be seeking and, and looking for his coming. We should be anticipating it. You know, when you were little and you were left at home and your parents said, oh, don't make a mess, and you made a mess. What did you do? You anticipated their coming home, right? So you had to clean things up before they got home. All right? Well, it's the same thing in our Christian lives. We don't want to be caught with a mess when the Lord returns for us. That should give us motivation to live each day 24-7 for him and solely him. We want to be ready for his return. This is the first event at the coming of Christ, is the rapture of the church. It's, it's signless. It happens in a moment when you really don't know. You don't expect it. There are no indicators leading up to it. This is not, it's not describing the other aspect of Christ's coming, which we know of as what? The day of the Lord. That event. This is not describing that, because that is a time where you do have signs leading up to it. You can read in Matthew and different places where Jesus said, hey, you know, when you see these things happening, you better get ready. Um, it's not describing Christ's return to judge and establish his kingdom. It's describing here the rapture, speaking of bringing his church home to be with him. Uh, there's no judgment ever in a rapture passage throughout the, the New Testament. There is this catching away, the snatching away of the church. And only those who are in Christ, that's God is, is going to take us. That's what's going to happen at that point in time. Now, you can just imagine what that's going to be like here on earth. 
Can you imagine millions of Christians all of a sudden gone? In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, gone? What if you're driving your car? Well, what if you're flying a plane? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things to think about here, right? Um, believers will be gone. Someone asked me a question about uh, this last week about what do you think about everybody trying to get to space and is that indicative of the end times and you know everybody wants to try to you know establish these communities in space and everything and and I said well I don't know if, if it's indicative of the end times but I do think that it sets up a scenario where um, the human uh, logic those who are left after all the Christians are gone can look around and go yeah those those crazy uh, uh, those crazy Christians are finally gone. The aliens came and took them away. <laughs> you know, now, that's not Bible. That's just me thinking about it. But it would give us a, a logical explanation. Because what, what, I mean, what logic would there be to conclude, wow, where'd these Christians go? Okay. So it's going to be a, a tough time when that rapture happens. And so when that happens, when, when the Lord takes away his church, the dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we will just be caught up. We will be transformed into a glorified state. And then on earth comes a period which eschatology speaks of as a great tribulation, a period of judgment on the earth by God for seven years. Revelation chapter 5, verse 19, or 5 to 19, basically talks about all that's going to happen during this time. Um, the prophet Daniel talks about it as well. It's a period that is described as this sequence of judgments that God kind of judges the earth. And it starts off with, with seals, he calls them. And then it, he describes trumpets and then bowls of judgment. And it's kind of like they think of a telescope. It kind of telescopes out that way. And it gets more severe and more severe and more severe. And it's, it's God judging the earth. And that's why I don't believe we'll be here. Because God already judged our sin on Calvary. There's no need for us to be here during the tribulation. So we want to be thinking of these things. Uh, and at the same time, during that seven-year period, as much judgment is going to be unleashed on this earth. I mean, it's just going to be horrific if you read about it. You read about it in Revelation. It's, just, it, it's, it's kind of scary. It's kind of good to know, oh, I'm not going to be here. You know, I'm saved. I'm I'm, I'm clothed by the righteousness of Christ. At the same time, during those seven years, there's going to be a great work of salvation and redemption going on, along with all this judgment that's happening. There's going to be people during the tribulation that actually come to Christ. They come to believe in Christ as the Messiah. But at the end of that period of time, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, there is also going to be another part of the resurrection, uh, the first resurrection, um, another part of that harvest. Remember, you have a general harvest. That's the resurrection. You have Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection. Then you have those who had died in Christ. When he returns for his church, they will be resurrected. But then at the end here of the tribulation, it also describes, you'll have another part, and it's described in Revelation 20, which describes at the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. So Christ returns, his church is caught up to be with him. It's going to be hell on earth because the Holy Spirit will not 
be here in, in the lives of believers anyway because they'll be with the Lord. Okay, there will be some who come to Christ during that time. But for the most part, it's going to be a, not a good place to be. <laughs> you don't want to be left here uh, when Christ comes for his church. And the only way to be sure of that is to trust him now. All right. But once that church is caught up, then you that begins the seven year period. You have three and a half years of kind of some craziness going on. And the Bible speaks of a, a world leader that will raise up and Israel and all the all the nations of the world will follow this guy, Antichrist. And they'll say, wow, this is this is a great guy. He's bringing everybody together. And that promises Israel all this stuff. And at three and a half years into this seven year period, he reneges. He desecrates the temple. He, he basically creates havoc, and he turns his wrath on all those who would even think of following Christ. And during that time, those people will uh, be slaughtered. They'll be executed for their faith. Um, and Revelation 20 says, it says, The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So we've gone all the way to the third element of it. So first you have the rapture. You have the, the second return of, of Christ. And, um, and at that time, after the tribulation, a, a deliverance and a resurrection will take place. Um, well, guess what? At the end of the thousand years, there's another resurrection. And you say, well, why? Why is there... Why is there another resurrection after the thousand-year reign of Christ? Because some of those people uh, will continue to die during the millennium. They'll continue to die. And some of them were believers. And they will die in a time of tribulation. Some of them will be have killed by the Antichrist. And uh, they'll even die during the thousand-year reign of Christ because it's an actual uh, time period on earth where living people went into the kingdom because they were believers. They had maybe families, they had children, uh, whatnot. Uh, there were unbelievers born into those families who wouldn't repent. And the Bible indicates that they rebel at the end of the, the, the thousand years. Can you imagine going through all this and still rebelling against God? How hard their hearts must have been, must be. And so there is, a, is death during this whole period of end times. And although people live a lot longer than, than normal during that time, um, it says that we, we have the first resurrection. And it's basically, you can think of it as four parts. You have Christ, the resurrection of Christ. You have the resurrection of the church at the rapture, those who died in Christ. Then you have the resurrection of the Old Testament and tribulation saints at the end of the tribulation period. It indicates they're resurrected then. And then... They have the resurrection of those born and dying in the kingdom, and there'll be many of them at the end of the millennial period. That's all composing the first resurrection. Remember, the second resurrection only deals with unbelievers. And so that's really what he's speaking of here when he speaks of the first resurrection. And there's a lot more study we could do into this, but we just don't have time uh, to do that, and that's not our purpose here. We're trying to get through the text but it's all compressed in those three words in verse 23 where he says, at his coming. That's what we're looking at. Uh, and it's Christ's resurrection that guarantees the resurrection of all these other three phases of the resurrection. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, none of these other three phases would have happened. And so that brings us to verse 24 when he says, then comes the, the end. 
This doesn't mean annihilation. It doesn't mean everything's just going to disintegrate and it's all gone. Uh, These words have meaning. It means the purpose of God is completed. The end. God's purpose is fulfilled. Uh, We have the conquest of all the enemies in verses 24 to 26. All connected with his resurrection and glory of his coming reign, there's this conquest of all the enemies of our Lord. And so when he says the end there, he's talking about the purpose of God, that it's obviously completed. Uh, Telos there for the word end is used. And not only can it refer to that which is final, but it also can refer to that which is completed, which is consummated, which is fulfilled, which is made perfect. Uh, The purpose, the goal, the reason, you might say, the design of history. God is basically saying, you know what? It's done. It's complete. And it involves four things here, the plan of God. First of all, verse 24, he says, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So what is this? It's the giving of the kingdom back to the Father. We have the giving of this kingdom back to the Father. This is kind of interesting. Um, This kingdom is going to be on earth for a thousand years during the millennial reign. Christ is going to be here. He's going to rule. He's going to reign for a thousand years here on earth. The Son of God, the Messiah, will rule and reign on the throne of uh, David right in Jerusalem. He's going to rule and reign. But at the end of which he is going to deliver the kingdom back to the heavenly father who planned all of this from the beginning. In Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 you can see this. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. It's interesting. It refers to the kingdom of the world, but it also says it has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So God takes the world and he takes it over. And he rules and reigns here through Christ. Verse 22, chapter 22, verse 3, Revelation, it says this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. Look at that. They're both together. The giving of the kingdom back to the Father. It's going to be once again. To the one who created it. And then in verse 24 to 25. We see that his government. Over all. His government over all. Not just the giving of the kingdom back to the Father. But his government over all. It says, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign. When is the end coming? Well, God, Christ, will destroy every rule, every authority, every power. Then he will reign. It certainly has to be at the end of the tribulation period. When the whole Antichrist, even the world government will be smashed, it will be destroyed, according to Revelation, and the kingdom of our Lord is set up. 
But it's also going to have to be at the end of the millennium as well. It's kind of a twofold description here. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, it says, And when the thousand years had ended, the millennium's over. Guess what happens? It says, Satan, who's been bound for a thousand years, that's why there's not a whole lot going on on earth, Satan will be released from his prison, it says, and will come out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. After all that these people have been through, (laughs) they're still rebelling against God. They're still blinded to the truth. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So they're going to attack the city of God. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. Why is this going on? Because there's such an outbreak at the end of the millennium by the devil who was loosed out of prison as he motivates those children who were born of parents even during the millennial time to turn against the Messiah. And God can't stand when people turn against him. He has no toleration for that. So God brings down fire from heaven and destroys them all. Um, It says in the beginning of verse 25, he must reign. He must reign. You know, sometimes people ask the question, well, how long does the Messiah reign? They say, oh, a thousand years. That's incorrect. He reigns what? Forever. Forever. It's a thousand year reign here on the earth. But he has established his reign forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Ever. So when you're on the side of Christ, guess what? You're definitely on the winning team. You know, you've got something to look forward to. You don't have to fret. So we see his giving of the kingdom back to the Father, the government, oh, his government over all. He, he puts everything down. And then third thing here, the goal. What's the goal in all this? Verse 25, it says, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. What's the goal? What's the goal behind this conquest of all the enemies at the end of verse 25? Till he has put all enemies under his feet. King David wrote these words in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai. Interesting. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So you have the Father, Yahweh, and says, my Lord, um, Adonai. And then he says he's going to smash basically with the rod of his mouth, trample them in all his fury. And what's the goal here? What's the great goal? What's the goal of God here? It's that all of his enemies will be put under the feet of our Messiah, of Christ. And we will know that every knee, the Bible says, will bow and every tongue will what? Confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen. You can either confess now in this age of grace in which we live, or you can confess then. But you will confess that Christ is Lord. Make no mistake about it. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes about this. 
It's kind of an interesting passage if you turn there. Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. Just to keep it in context, I'll read the whole thing. He starts in verse 15. Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, Paul says, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And this is what I want us to focus on, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him, look at what it says, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far, what's it say, above all rule, all authority, all power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. He, God, put all things under his feet, Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who dwells in it, who fills all in all. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, it says, And of which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer is none. It was only to Christ that was given. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, tells us very clearly what this looks like. It says, You made him, Christ, for a little while lower than the angels. What's that mean? Well, he came and he put on a body. He was the incarnation, right? You have crowned him with glory and honor, verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection under, uh, in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, there it goes, it tells us who it is, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Sometimes pastors will ask questions at conferences, and, and occasionally a pastor will say, well, who, who do you think is in charge of the church? Is it the pastor or the board or the deacons? Who is it? And I loved how David Hawking answered this question because he, he, he basically said, neither one, nobody deserves to be mentioned in that position as head of the church. That belongs to one already, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, um, we are servant leaders under the lordship of Christ. Uh, we, we always have to have some kind of management Fixation in our head, it seems. But you know what? Here, amongst the Trinity, you, you see really a, um, a love among equals. You have submission among equals amongst the Trinity. Well, what do you mean? 
Well, think of marriage, for example. Marriage does not teach that the wife is inferior to the man, to the husband. It doesn't teach that. What, what does marriage teach? What does the Bible teach? It, it teaches that we're co-partners. We're equal heirs of the grace of life. Yeah, God has set up an authority structure, but that doesn't make us less of a person. So equals can, guess what? They can submit to one another. That's what happens in a marriage. That's what should happen in a marriage. Well, when you think of the Trinity, the Father and Son are one. They are both God, are they not? But they can willingly, because they're equal to one another, submit to each other if they desire. And so here in this understanding of what we're reading, the Son has chosen to submit to the Father. That's his choice. He chose to do that. To demonstrate to everyone the purpose and meaning and definition of real submission. He gave us a picture of what it looks like to be submissive. It's not that Christ was less powerful than the Father. No, he wasn't. I mean, we always have to have people over everybody, right? In this world. That's how we think. Ken, you probably know this. I mean, there was probably a day when they called you the janitor. Well... A lot of them are called the executive vice president of maintenance, right? I mean, that's just the way our world thinks. Or I remember, you know, the people that used to pick up the trash. What do you call them? What do you call them? The trash man. Well, now they're, they're waste removal engineers. I mean, it's just kind of silly. Everybody has to have a title. Everybody wants a little title. They want somebody over them, and they want to be over somebody. And what did Jesus say? He warned, he says, hey, if you want to lord that over everybody, then great. You know what? Be a slave to everybody. (laughs) You want to lord something over somebody? Be a slave to everybody. Serve everybody. We don't get that today because we have a desire to be over people. We don't want to be a servant. Um, But you know what? Experts would tell you the best and most effective managers and leaders in business and in the business world are those who are willing to humbly serve and walk with the people they lead. They don't have the big corner office and all the peons down below. They don't think that way. They're there to serve them just as much as they're there to serve the company, whatever it might be. Here, all principality, all power, all government, it says, all rule will be under our blessed Lord. And nobody deserves to be mentioned in the same sentence. He is the head of all, including the church. Amen? He's the head of this world system. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to him that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, we see here in verse 26, the granting of that victory, the granting of that victory. It says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is what? Death. Amen? Death. You know, I did a funeral last week, and I told the folks at the funeral, 